Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Pornography is a global estimated $97 billion industry, with about $12 billion of that coming from the United States. According to a recent report, 75% of parents believed that their child had never encountered pornography, but of those children, 53% reported that they had, in fact, seen porn. We live in a culture that is obsessed with image. It's a sliding scale from the social media organized world of all people under the age of 30 and increasingly all people under the age of 60. But ours is a culture obsessed with the image, obsessed with the picture or the video. That's where our attention goes. In that climate, so many have said, it can be difficult to focus on reading your Bible when it's so easily distracted by the buzz of your phone or the moving pictures or pixels in your environment. In a world that is so unbelievably saturated with images, and in a world that has become so unbelievably and devastatingly corrupt, in the images it traffics in, what do we do as Christians to navigate a space that seems so fraught and so difficult? For this podcast conversation, I am inviting back the resident Anglican priest of the pod, (laughs) the right reverend himself, Hayden Butler. Hayden, welcome back to the podcast. It's good to be here. I start in a pretty dark place there um, with two shocking, I hope shocking statistics to put some more context on the $12 billion industry that America has when it comes to porn. uh, Hollywood makes upwards of six to $7 billion a year. So as far as cultural production, or at least for the watching world, especially if they conceive of America as a Christian nation, uh, Christianity and the Christian nation is producing twice as much uh, revenue from the destruction of the human soul and the trafficking of pornography than it is even in the global impact of Hollywood, which has shaped cultures from here to the other side of the world. Um, Starting in a dark place like that seems important to me because the subject that we actually want to talk about today is the subject of the icon the subject of the image as Christians have wrestled with it for Mm -hmm. now millennia. Um, For those who maybe aren't familiar, um, well back in the 8th century, um, there was a moment in which Christianity, which had become, uh, in the early church's experience, a, 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 a 
religion that was saturated with images, images of the saints, images of Christ, images of the Holy Family. Um, there was a moment in which Islam, which was newly on the scene and on the rise, um, sort of had these erstwhile cultural collisions with Christianity before there were other kinds of collisions with Christianity. Uh, and one of those seemed to be at this level of the icon or the image, where in Islam, um, the image or the icon um, is strictly forbidden as an artistic representation mm -hmm. of absolutely anything. Right. Um, you think of the beautiful um, Islamic art and architecture, um, the design work and, and the colors and things like that, but you don't think of images, uh, very deliberately so. And so even Eastern Christianity, which we oftentimes to this day think of as sort of the more imagistic side right. of the Christian faith, um, the experience in, in the 8th century was that Pope Leo III um, turned toward iconoclasm and abolished, banished, uh, made uh, outlawed um, the use of images in churches to the point of literally destroying images in churches, almost as a maybe a guilty response to what was perceived as the purity of Islam's approach to the not making of images. So the arguments even in the 8th century were, we have strayed from the roots of the Ten Commandments in which the Lord very clearly told his people not to make any graven images, nothing to distract us, nothing to draw our attention, to bow down before what we know of as idolatry. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times the 8th century story is lost because we tend to think of it as a Protestant thing that happens in the Reformation where iconoclasm sweeps through the Catholic Church as this sort of revolt against how Catholicism in the perspective of the radical Protestants has become a new form of idolatry, right. sort of re-crucifying Christ, worshiping saints, um, all sorts of things that need to then be, again, smashed, altars that need stripped. Literally. Literally. And so defaced, right? Yeah. Statues defaced, uh, paintings, uh, you know, ripped out, right? Um, and there would be these raids on these churches from very sort of radically, zealously, piously self-justified um, attacks on local churches um, in the 16th century uh, in which iconoclasm was almost proof of piety. Now, in our day, Hayden, um, churches are honestly much less interested in church issues right they're much less aware of that history it can sound peculiar quaint but in some sense our worship not to be maybe maybe this is unfair but our worship is sort of not that interesting to us mm -hmm. so we're not that worked up in general as american christians over images or right. icons in that way and yet as i said in that opening uh portion um, we are a culture that is saturated with images, and and I'm, I'm saying images because I'm thinking of the ubiquity of, of the cell phone, which has changed so right. much, right, and has made it that you can truly traffic as a voyeur uh, in the images of human beings you are not present to, who do not know you, who you are not interacting with or speaking to, um, and yet you are able to view them. Um, now that could describe Instagram accounts, yep. um, you know, for uh, people in your neighborhood. That could, I mean, that could describe anything completely tame and pleasant and nice. Uh, and it could also describe pornography. Yep. So in a, in a time in which every young person and now every old person, every person 
has this kind of constant sort of portal uh, to the disconnected images of people, um, what would we start, how would we start to sort of think through um, some of the issues of how Christians ought to approach images in this time? Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it as simple as saying, um, I'm thinking of like Jacques Ellul talking about sort of the humility of the word, right. that you and I are, are people of the book, people who believe that God was a hidden God, spoken, revealed only through his word mm-hmm. to his people, uh, that this was an important thing, but that we sort of are the old sort of people losing out because we keep talking about the Bible and wanting people to to pray and close right. their eyes yeah, exactly. and do all sorts of things. Yeah. When the, when we continue to just lose, is it that simple that we just continue to lose to YouTube clips and the addiction to the image? Mm. How, how do we how do we begin to approach something that can just seem so all-consuming? It can be difficult to parse. Yeah. This is something I think about a lot because, you know, in, in, in the tradition I come from, the the image is something that's that that is a that's a fixture right we we do have images we have um, images of of the great you know christians who have gone before us that adorn the church we have an Im- we have images of jesus you know on his throne of glory in heaven on the cross dying for our salvation um there's a very multi-sensory you know quality to our worship um and there, and and the, the question needs to be, you know, we have to always be examining ourselves is why are we doing this? Um, so, I mean, it, you know, I think we, we really do need to first start by becoming students of our own history again, um, because a lot of these a lot of these things really have been hashed out in different moments, different seasons of the history of our people, the, our, our, the Christian people. So I, I mean, the, by the time we get around to the council, the 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 time when when you know we we sat down as a as the church to to figure out what to think about this image question, right? Whether we're going to be, yeah, uh, you know, it, it, you could, it was it was always indicative of the heightened rhetoric of the time because you had the whole thing divided between now what you know two polarized camps. One was the image lovers, and the other one was the image smashers. And it's <laughs> you know, it's like iconoclasm sounds really fun, but it really it's really the image smasher. And so it's like, are we going to smash them or love them? And we had to figure out what that meant for the Christian, you know, because our conversations with Islam, our conversations with within our own ranks, you know, brought up the idea, are we committing idolatry here by having images of things? Um, we know from the Old Testament that creating images was expressly forbidden when it came to God. Um, and the question is, what has changed that makes this okay now, if anything? Now, it helps if we understand what other conversations have been happening with Christians prior to that, because that comes, that's a kind of a later, later in, in that first millennium of the church's life, that's a later conversation that stems from earlier ones that have to do with who is Jesus. So I think we have to begin there. Before we can talk about images or even really any material thing, we have to go back to the question of who is Jesus. The church spent centuries you know, debating this, right? And it debated, you know, is Jesus fully God? Is he really divine? If he's really divine, that means like, yeah, he's he's divine like God as we've always known him is divine. Is he really human? Is he does he really partake in really a full humanity or just a kind of pretend humanity, a kind of performed humanity? 
then is like, okay, well, how do those two things interact with each other if he's fully both? Is it this way or this way? All right, we have to have another council. Okay, maybe, well, we decided it's that way, but is it this way or this way within that way? Okay, let's have another council <laughs> and so on and so forth. And so we are we got an increasingly nuanced sense of who Jesus was over the first seven, 600 years. Mm-hmm. That comes down to a question when we, come to, when we get to the area you started us out with of... What are the implications of that for everything around such a person as Jesus? So the questions that came up at the same time was, how do we think about Mary? How do we think about the mother of Jesus? What does having God in her womb mean for her? You know, mm-hmm. and, and how do we think of her? And then also, how does that implicate our idea of the creation that the God-man walked upon? And does that change things? You know, C.S. Lewis, he, you know, he pointed that the incarnation, right, the union of divinity and humanity, where the creator becomes, you know, enters into the creation. This is, a, this is a turning point. A corner is turned for the universe, and it cannot be the way it ever was before. Hmm. And so you could look at this conversation as an elaboration on that. Like, okay, if God has actually walked among us, and as John the Apostle says, we have seen him, we have heard him. We have touched him. He who is from the beginning. Um, what does that mean for visual representation? Hmm. And so that's the question at hand is, do what do we think the incarnation of Jesus, the God becoming flesh, means for our ability to look at God and to see God? Because when Jesus talks about himself, he says, anyone who has seen me has seen God. And so the people sitting there at table with him, looking at this man, were looking at God, objectively, not metaphorically, not figuratively, not in any other less than literal sense. They were literally looking at God. So God can be seen. And so this becomes the question that then, okay, so what does this mean for when we make images? You know, is, is it idolatry if the Lord made himself visible? Is like, you know, and what, and what does that mean? What is idolatry even? And what, you know, what is an image even? And so then this is where the mm. conversation becomes interesting. Yeah. So the first place we have to look is to our own history, because we've said a lot of really great things <laughs> um, about this over the years. The spirit has been very good to us and has, has illuminated a lot of really, really um, wonderful, pious, intelligent people to say some really smart things about this. Um, I'm, I'm always grateful, actually, in this, in this conversation to a professor of mine from my undergraduate years, uh, Fred Sanders. Um, who was, is one of the foremost theologians about the doctrine of the Trinity and is also a really great artist and especially a really great cartoonist. Nice. Um, and so he kind of brought these worlds together for me. But this is a question that since I studied under him has really been at the forefront of my mind. Yeah, but I think we have to start there with our own history and ask, what does it mean to even look at things anymore? That's so interesting because, you know, even when I did bring us to that 8th century context, in part, I, I'm aware of that context because I teach um, John of Damascus, right. who was the, maybe the first uh, to sort of argue sort of fulsomely mm-hmm. in defense of icons in this way, right? Because of this reaction of yeah. Pope Leo III's. Um, and and he, he says exactly, or he, he frames it in the way that you did, which is after the incarnation, everything has changed. Um, he says, he says, the invisible God, the invisible things of God have been made visible, right? right? That once once God has taken on flesh, something has fundamentally shifted. When, he, when pure spirit, he says, becomes man for your sake, then you can clothe him in a human form in the sense right. of you can 
draw him or you depict him, draw him, right? When the invisible becomes visible to the eye, you may then draw his form. When he who is a pure spirit, immeasurable in the boundlessness of his own nature, existing as God, takes on the form of a servant and a body of flesh, then you may draw his likeness. Show it to anyone who's willing to contemplate it. Depict his coming down, his virgin birth, his baptism in the Jordan, his transfiguration on Mount Tabor, his all-powerful sufferings, his death and miracles, the proofs of his deity, the deeds he performed in the flesh. Even just as I'm reading this, and I just interrupted it, but even as I'm reading this, I'm thinking of growing up at a sort of you know low church, Protestant, evangelical, the kinds of people mm-hmm. who uh, would conceive themselves as iconoclasts, and thousands of images that I grew up with of all the stories of Jesus oh, of in course. my picture yeah. books and uh, my picture book my Bibles. My children's Bible, and, yeah. yeah. Um, are flying past, even as I'm reading this list, mm-hmm. thinking, oh, this is what Catholics do, or this is what the Eastern Orthodox do. I'm thinking, no, this is what we evangelicals, all, <laughs> this is what everybody do does, yeah. right? And, do and at no point was anybody like, that picture book Bible is, is outrageous. Right. This is wrong. It's you blasphemous. Know, it's it's blasphemous. idolatrous. Right. And, and so he, he makes the case that God has chosen, I think of John Donne's line at the end of the Annunciation, immensity cloistered in thy womb. Right. That, you know, this part of the the humility, the kenosis, which is also the glory of, of, of God in Jesus Christ mm-hmm. is, is the way in which he voluntarily circumscribes himself right. in human flesh, right? Um, and that the apostolic witness, as you say, is we saw him. We touched him. Like, you can trust us because we were there in the sensory world Mm -hmm. uh, interacting with the Lord of life. We weren't having a private mystical vision. We sat with, ate with, were fed by Mm -hmm. the one from the beginning. So then if Christ's incarnation fundamentally changes how we can or are invited to or must think of images mm-hmm. um we also can't say it it banishes the idolatrous right no it, does it doesn't not banish uh, idolatry as the maybe primary default mode of the human heart right. it does not banish any of that no. i mean one of the reasons i sort of wanted to start with the darkness of the image was to just make sure that 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 can never be accidentally removed from the table right we are fundamentally idolatrous right mm-hmm. so right. so it's not that the incarnation uh, got rid of idolatry as the as an experience uh, for fallen humanity no, um it may have, as as some have argued it, it may have simply magnified the outrage because because the way in which we are typically idolatrous, especially as sort of quote modern peoples, yeah. is 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 the the image of another human being, um, and and how incredible you know part of the idolatry of the ancient world, in part if we want to just give it a a good faith argument which you don't usually do with idolatry but a good faith argument for ancient world idolatry is. It's weird because the 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 divine or deity must be more and other than merely us. Mm-hmm. So so it's gonna have a head of a cat and the body of something. It's right. gonna it's gonna look like some chimera, some kind of crazy mm-hmm. otherworldly thing if it's truly a god, right? Um, it turns out <laughs> that the true god. Um, took on the flesh of a human being, yeah. someone that Isaiah 53 reminds us was not beautiful, that we would look upon him and desire him, that he was not comely, that he was not even attractive. Yeah. In that sense, he was plain. He was unbecoming in some ways as a person, 
right? As the most ordinary thing we see yeah. another person walking by. So there is something in the mode of the way idolatry has become fixated on the idolatry of human flesh, right? right? Whether it's our own or that of another's. I, I mean, I think you can use the pornographic in, in, a, in a variety of ways outside of what people, you know, technically think of. But, um, but the, if we just call it idolatry of the human, yep. right? The incarnation certainly didn't change that impulse. So if we're in a world in which we simultaneously, down to the youngest in our society, are prey to and sometimes even addicted by um, the idolatrous, idolatrous consumption of other people and their images, mm-hmm. um, how do we attempt to say, oh, but wait, because Christ took on flesh, it's all different? Um, how do those two worlds then collide, right? The, yeah. the, the $12 billion world of American consumption of porn, yeah. for example, and and then this transformative experience of everything through the incarnation. How would we, how would we counterpose those, or how would we bring that into right. the conversation? No, I, it's an excellent question. I think we have to, we have to begin theologically, and then it, but it trickles down to practicality really quickly. Um, so. I think you hi- you correctly highlighted what I think the the incarnation does bring to light that idolatry isn't the making of a visible thing as such. Idolatry is a way of looking more than a thing that is looked at. You know, it is a way of trying to order creation to contain the invisible or the intangible rather than it is um the making of that thing you know, in itself that, or that thing, whatever it is. So the problem, I think it's always helpful to remember that the problem is in us Mm -hmm. and it's not in the thing per se. So the problem, the main problem of idolatry is in us and how we, we go about that thing. So the question of, of, you know, in the icon conversation became, okay, so if creation can actually communicate, can actually make manifest the divine, um, we need to be really careful with that. Right, and so in the Orthodox tradition, they'll often talk about the the process of making icons, not as making them, but writing them, with the same verbs that they use for when they write theology. That icons are a kind of visible theology, and as Protestants, we we really we can get that right. We 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 when we became people who got suspicious of images, we became people who became almost too trusting of text. Right? We love words. We love words. <laughs> we love words. Right. Yeah. So while we might be skeptical of a like a of a of an icon on the wall, um, having a framed and beautifully calligraphied Bible verse mm. on the wall um, doesn't strike us as problematic. Um, when it's quite possible, we can look at those words in a flawed kind of way, just as we can look at the image in a flawed kind of way, where we can take a person out of their context and make mm. an image of them. We can also take a verse out of context. And isn't that what our pastors are always warning us about doing? Don't take the verse out of context, you know, even if it makes a really cool throw pillow, like don't do that. And, um, and, and, and but that, 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 again, that draws us back to a problem of how we curate a thing to look at yeah. and how we go to look at it. Hmm. That's where the problem of idolatry actually begins is in how we curate the image to look at and then how we go then to look at. So it's in the how the thing is formed and then how we approach it 
to observe it. Mm. That's where the that's where we really hit these where these two things collide. I think. Okay, so yeah, I mean, I mean, the the to put the finest point on what you were just using as as an example, Jesus himself says, right? You search the scriptures because you believe in them, you have life. But it's they that speak of me, right? Right. If you see the scriptures and you do not thereby see the Son of God, you have seen wrongly, right? And that, and that becomes an idolatry of the scriptures yeah. that actually keeps you from salvation, right? What an extraordinary thing, except you can think of several examples, people who are well-versed in the scripture, maybe even academically study and yep. write about the scripture and have clearly turned away yeah. from any faith they may no have faith. had, right? Um, so yeah, so the warning, I love the warning about the word because if idolatry is, is a way of seeing or a way of um, making useful to the wrong ends, something created, yeah. right? Including something given to us, even as the words of God are given to mm-hmm. us. Um, then everything is open, right? right? As either terrifyingly destructive of the soul mm-hmm. um, or an avenue by which we may see rightly um, the good gifts of God right. or God himself. Um, so, okay. So then it isn't that um, oh, we have we have cell phones, or um, you know, it, it isn't it isn't the fact that we are not yet. Not we're, yet. we're getting there. Okay. But yeah, not okay. yet. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> so okay, it isn't it isn't the fact that uh, the image is the real danger, and mm-hmm. and the word is always uh, the safe right. thing. Right. Um, it's how I we mean, approach both. It's how we approach them. It's how we we come to see. Um, when it comes to the way we see the human person, because that's what we're talking about when we're thinking about icons. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, there are beautiful paintings of, of created things and trees and things that's like right. that, that, that everyone, uh, I think, um, would be able to say, this is sort of, this is just, this is lovely. This is beautiful. It doesn't seem as problematic, even if we could probably push that a little bit. But if we were, if we were kind of thinking of how we see when we see one another, yeah, right? Um, as a as a sort of a finer sort of like narrowing of the question, right? Mm-hmm. Christ becomes a human being, but then we also have ways of seeing one another that are that are idolatrous and destructive. Right. Just as we might look, I mean, to use the theological term, heretically or heterodoxically, hmm. at Jesus, right? God made manifest and say and represent visibly, you know, him. In, in a way that does not tell the truth of who he is. We can do that with the image bearers of God, the divinely instituted image bearers of God, human beings, right? Where we can create a kind of heresy about people generally, or a kind of false view of the person, right? Mm. In either word or in image, right? That does not tell the truth. And that's really the problem. That's where that's where a, a thing in its making becomes idolatrous, is it does not tell the truth, right? The visual representation of God was forbidden because God made his own images, right? He made human, humanity his icon mm. in the world. He, then he himself became incarnate, right? Mm-hmm. Then and then and this and this this is a, these are sort of authoritative <laughs> things that in their that represents the fullness of God. The fullness of God is made manifest, not a sort of fragment of God made manifest and then purported to be the who God really is. It's a sort of flawed vision that is traded for the real thing, right? Mm. Um, but I'd like to sh- I'd like to actually share a quote if I can. Yeah. May I do that? Yeah. Um, the the getting back to this idea of modes. 
um, uh, this this idea of how we make something and how we look at something. I want to share a quote from a, a great kind of again an Orthodox theologian named um, Michael Constance, uh, and he says this of this kind of two ways, and it might help us make some progress. He says um, the idol delights in physical existence, in the delight we experience in vision itself. And its highest aim is to make that delight perceptible to us. In concretizing the splendor of the visible, the idol dazzles and so arrests our vision, confining it within a closed, self-referential system, allowing us to see nothing outside itself. The idol consequently reduces the divine to the measure of the human gaze, arresting the movement of ascent precisely at the threshold of the invisible. The icon, on the other hand, aims neither to satiate vision nor to restrict it to a particular point, but to free it by confronting it with the invisible, proposing to it that the boundaries of the possible are wider than they seem. Hmm. A closed system. Yep, that's the idol. That's the idol. It's that it terminates at the image, but primarily then it terminates at the sort of act of my viewing the right. image. A closed system then we could call that sort of consuming the image. Right. When it when something when a human or an, an even a picture or even like a, a a real thing, a waterfall, a flower becomes just an is what it is. When we cynically say that about mm. things, we say it is what it is. It means to say, I've drawn an invisible box around all the potential past, present, and future of this thing, and it is now wrapped up for my consumption because I know exactly how much there is to consume, and it's a finite thing that I can then take with me. Mm -hmm. But so long as a thing become, becomes, when a thing becomes, again, integrated back into its past, its present, and its future in their fullness— it becomes impossible to consume because we cannot get to the end of it because we really can't get to the end of how a thing integrates with everything else around it into the whole fabric of, of everything else. Right. Even a flower becomes sort of this, you know, m like momentous thing because it is relating to the whole world around it. And for me to say like mine and just kind of, just kind of like just draw that box and then say, it's mine to consume. Here we go. Mm -hmm. I have, I have trod upon a real thing that I have pretended is unreal, but doesn't change the fact that it's, that it's still real. Hmm. And even like thinking about, you know, pictures, photographs, like the things that right. we, you know, we think of when we think of an image that we've taken or that we might have. Right. Um, like if you have pictures of like a moment, a family event, something like that, like nobody looks at that and doesn't think of everything outside of the shot, right? right. Like you think of, you know, your kid running past, you think of how they became when they got older, or what they were like when they were even younger, right? You think of like everything moves, right? In right. the sense that it brings back to life, it revivifies, right? If you are seeing it for what it is, right. you're not seeing it as an image, uh, uh, full stop, you know, circumscribed, etc. Um, it's bringing you back into the life that's being represented in right. that image, right? Exactly. 
um, it really has its a whole world underneath and beyond it, right. which you only partially recall, right? Mm-hmm. Like even that, it can kind of shock us like to try to remember, even when we're looking at a photograph we may be in, right? Like it's not that you remember every single thing that was said that day, yeah. right? Or even the order of some of the events. In, so, in that sense, it sort of has, it has undefined edges even in your, in your recall right. because the experience of life is never circumscribed by ourselves. We right. never really get any moment we're fully in in the way that we are fully in it, right? Exactly. So, so then if an image, if God has made, had made us in the beginning, part of the reasons he says don't make any images is because we were the icons of God. In, in the image of God, he made them male and female, right? He right. made them. Um, then, then when we when we see in Christ, God in flesh, in in the form of a human being, Jesus of Nazareth, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, then um, it it almost it doesn't transfigure down, right? God's image is somehow captured in us. No, it transfigures up, right, and out, uh, mm-hmm. further up, further out, further in. Um, how is it possible that this thing that that seems like I think I know maybe what a person is being one, but this is not, I don't know fully, like you said, hundreds of years of church councils just trying to put clear language to, right. to what a picture Christ of words. is, a picture in words, uh, if that's not what the creed is. Right, like, that's what exactly what it is, about? yeah. Um, a picture in words to, to try to both capture and make sure not to fully limit by capturing in words um, this this image of the invisible God um, without remainder, the God man in this human flesh. Um, then, then how should we in a culture? So let's, let's then get to yeah. the cultural challenge because I've been talking about this a lot with my high schoolers as, you, as anyone can imagine. Um, they're in the throes of being sort of lab tested as like the first or the second, depending on where you cut the generational lines, um, generation of human beings um, who have, all of the world's darkness available to them in the, the anonymity uh, and and twenty four seven cycle of the devices that yep. have been given to them for a variety of reasons, um, some of which are completely understandable, um, and some of which are educational, right. <laughs> some of which are all sorts of holes. Um, but nonetheless, uh, they are now growing up in a way that, as I will tell them in class, I did not grow up with the access to the idolatry or the, um, the soul destructive power that they have grown up without them choosing to be That's right. um, prone or vulnerable to that. They are simply vulnerable to that in a way uh, we could probably say nobody ever has in the history of humankind. That's right. Okay. This is, this is an extraordinary and terrifying experiment. Yep. Um, it's hard enough to be a teenager oh, uh, in any time. Terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, and now they're faced with an onslaught of of the idolatrous and the destructive. Um, you know, I mean, one of the terrifying stats, you know, in in the land of sort of of the pornography is is that upwards of fifty percent of young people say they happened upon porn accidentally right. the first time. There wasn't like being sought out, you know, in every case. It was like you know, a nine, a 10, an 11 or 12 year old, or somebody is showing something or sharing something or yeah. whatever it is. So, I mean, like it's, it's, it's a little rich for us to then turn around on the generational note and be like, I can't believe you kids, you know, with this, that, and the other thing. It's like, like I told them the other day, I go, listen, once upon a time, you had to really want to be creepy. Yeah. You had to, you had to get in a creepy car. You had to put on a creepy coat and you had to drive to a creepy store. 
yeah. at the middle of creepy night and you go into a creepy store and see other creepy people. I mean, it was like a thing to be creepy. That's you know, right. like you had, it was like you had to risky. Commit to it. It was risky and you had to commit to it. Um, you know, it, yeah. it, 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 it was like, you know, you had to really be, you know, like, yeah, it was a, you had to plan it. Um, and I, and I told him that, you know, humorously and otherwise, but to just say like the number one issue um, that is going to impact and, and alter this generation, in my opinion, is pornography. There's no any. There's nothing that's even close to it. Yeah. They're going to probably have a dozen economic recessions. There's going to be any number of challenges. Sure. Maybe another pandemic or two. Who knows? The thing that is fundamentally we rewiring our brains is the way that we are consuming one another. The way that we have gotten used to, gotten used to yeah. being voyeurs in a maybe um, sanitized environment of ordinary social media, yeah. um, but voyeurs, and, I, and we had a really interesting conversation the other day about this, where we are used to being voyeurs of other people without interacting with them, That's right. without talking to them, even people we know, but we're not actually having any kind of communication with them as we scroll through them. Right. So even in the most sanitized sort of like firewalled uh, existence of of a young person, maybe with a phone, um, we are still training ourselves to be voyeurs of the human outside of being in relationship um, accountably or seen by one another. That's right. Um, Seeing anonymously. Even for the people we care about, love, our great friends, whatever, it's still a very strange mode to be training yourselves in from a very young age to think is normal, a normal way of seeing, coming yeah. back to where we started with your description of, of idolatry and the icon. It's a way of seeing. And so I was trying to make the point that like it's not you don't wait to say who's really creepy here, you know, and who's like trying to be really no. intentionally whatever. It's like we are all getting more and more used to seeing human beings apart from knowing them, apart from talking to them, apart from being seen by right. them. That's extraordinary. Um, the challenge that that presents is extraordinary. But I think unless we ask those like questions before the question, yeah, that's um, right. Especially if the stats are, are anywhere even close, that 75%, for example, if we're talking about young people, 75% of parents don't think their kids have seen anything like this, and yeah. 50% of those kids say they have. Like, especially if we already have a total disconnect, maybe, as to where our generations are at with this challenge or this problem. Yeah. Um, it's like we got to back up a little bit further and just say we've gotten used to to publishing our lives in such a way that we do not need to see or be, we do not need to see, but we maybe depend on evidence of having been seen, Yep. right? I need a like or a heart or something. So I know people liked, you know, the podcast posts like, hey everybody, you know, there's a yeah, new episode right. of the podcast. And if there's, I'll, I'll be totally honest, if there's like 57 likes on, on that like little post of like our episode or something, I'm like, sweet, right. something real that dopamine happening. hit. Yeah, yeah. I'm, like, I'm feeling good about life. Yeah. All those hours in the garage and poor Zach and waiting here and Laura, poor Laura waiting here. And it was all worth it, it's 57 people. <laughs> Right. So, so like every single one of us, I remember like talking to my wife about like, you know, raising kids and you're like, and you get to a moment where you're like, why am I posting every picture? Like, why can't I even exist in a great moment with my child without feeling like I have to tell someone it happened? Right. Like that to me is, is the, is the, the foundational stuff of the challenges we're facing that we've all, 
all gotten used to a mode of existence that is not real mm-hmm. or it is not it's not it's not relational it's it's advertised it's uh I'll check in when i can uh oh this didn't really happen unless i have a picture of it. right <laughs> like i feel like on the lowest level without meaning anything bad um we have trained our seeing to go almost against um what it would mean to to see rightly another human being that's right you know and that's where it it starts a long time before you visit the wrong website or you you know again like it's so effortless to even run across that stuff by accident um and you know it's it's all pervasive and so but again so the thing can't be um the, the, the threshold can't be restrict, like making it harder to access, right? Right. Because that doesn't seem to be in the cards, first of all. But second right. of all, that also doesn't really solve the problem. The problem isn't um, a sort of ease or lack of ease of access. The problem is in the way of looking at creation and then looking specifically at each other that does this. You know, we can, we, we look at each other as, you know, as people to, we get something from, right. Mm -hmm. You know, is, is I, again, how can I benefit from you? How can I be found? How can I be made more substantial and feel full, more full as a person because of something that I've gotten from you? Um, that, that's something that begins way younger and in way, um, different ways, a very roundabout route before it does. But once it happens though, when we've been treated that way, and even when we've treated that way, you know, uh, it changes us. You know, even before we visit the wrong thing, right? Even if we look at the wrong thing, um, before that, if we have been treated in this mode of being treated, or if we have treated another in that way, it scars us. I, I'm really thankful in our time because this is no longer just the sort of the the problem that you know prudish Christians are dealing with. This has become right. an actually a wider co- cultural conversation right, on the right, on right. the pornographic uh, dimension of it because you know it's like with insti- with organizations like Fight the New Drug and things like that. There's actually you know started to be some real you know some some real kind of cognitive science that's developed around this. And the closest thing I think anyone could describe what happens when you treat another human being in this kind of exploitative and consumptive way is it traumatizes you. And when you're treated that way, it traumatizes you. It changes the brain and damages it. And I, you know, I worked over a decade with teenagers and I remember in, you know, in seminary and in my training, listening to people uh, pastors who deal with trauma victims and the way they would describe what a trauma victim looked like. And every year I've taught high schoolers, I've seen more and more young men and women come to me with the kind of fixed glassy eyes, the inability to, you know, recognize nonverbal cues, the tendency to drift off a, a thousand yards away. They have trauma symptoms more and more. And you know, the kid we might be inclined to say, oh, they just space out in class. So the kid that, you know, has a hard time organizing his work or the kid, I, I'm seeing, I'm just seeing too many kids that it's like, what if though, um, they, they've, they've actually been damaged by something. And I've asked that sometimes in pastoral conversations to, with young people. I say, you saw something you didn't expect to see, or someone asked something of you that you didn't expect to be asked, didn't that, didn't they? And their eyes just kind of get narrow and they just kind of nod and say, yeah, 
I'm like, you didn't know what to do when that happened, right? And they're like, no. But now there's an odd fascination there, isn't there? Yeah. I think, you know, but that begins even before, you know, you, again, you click, you click the thing or you, or you, you make, you send an, uh, uh, an indiscreet text or whatever. It begins with, is a person the kind, is, is you know, it, are people the kind of thing that I can expect this from? And if we cross that bridge, the rest of it's downhill. Like it's all everything else is downstream from right, that. Right. Can can a can you ever think of a person as something to right. be consumed? Right. Right. Because part of being circumscribed, as you said, means to have sort of determined the use and the value yeah. of something. Um, and what that means is the use and value to you as a consumer. Right. So if we've gotten to a place as a consumer culture in which we are consuming one another, we are, we are treating the image of God, the, the icons of God, other human beings. Yeah. How can you say you love God if, if you, you have not, hated yet the one you have seen? <laughs> if you do not know how to love your brother. If, right. if, if you cannot do that, if you cannot treat and learn to see yeah. Yeah, the one you have seen, how can you possibly learn to see God? And that changes the conversation because pornography ceases to be, um, it ceases to be merely naughty, right? Right. It becomes sacrilege. Right. And, and when, as you said, it's like, it's not the prudishness of the, the, no. the um, sort of whatever church of whatever. Yeah. It's, it's, you are, you are, you have profaned the icon of God. <laughs> and, and you also said, you know, the, the neuroscience is, is, is evident yeah, it's that <laughs> you, are, you are damaging the development of your prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. It leads to many different things, including negative mental health outcomes like depression, mm-hmm. anxiety. It leads crippled to memory executive problems. Functioning. Yeah. Yep. Crippled All of relational, that stuff yeah. is, is known now. Tension span issues. Right. Yep. right. And... And of course, uh, also, uh, it's very difficult to have relationships with people, especially people of the opposite sex yep. um, or of that, that desired sex. Um, it'd be very difficult to interact with people um, because you are not interacting with them exclusively on your terms. Right. Right. If we, if we see one another for what you are for me, then all of a sudden when a person actually has a will, a personality, um, reactions that aren't ours, all of a sudden they differentiate from how we ought to or get used to <laughs> right. dealing with them. And you and I both um, do premarital counseling. Yeah, <laughs> and, that's right. And talk about marriage. And one of the things you were mentioning the other day is, uh, is the idea of forbearance, is the idea that when you, when you get married, there, there are things about your spouse that are just different. They're not bad. They're just different. And right. to you, they're like, I'm not used to this at all. Yeah, and that doesn't mean this, they need to change. Need that means you change. need to grow to <laughs> not maybe not be bothered by that, or maybe just to be bothered, right? And not have to do anything about it, not try to fix but those or, or change in human relationships, right? The, those those awkwardnesses or those yeah. uh, surprises or those inconveniences or whatever. That's the good stuff. That is the good stuff. <laughs> that's that's literally why, that's why you should get married. Um, but in uh, cultures that have consumed uh, more and more sort of record amounts of pornography, the, the fallout in part is the right. decline of marriage. No, it's, yeah, no, right. I mean, right. It, it is it is inversely proportionate to people knowing how to interact with one another, right? Um, for the for the actual sort of not consumable, um, not knowable fully, 
right. um, thing that a person is. That's the thing, though, because like I think even we have to push for a stronger w- word than interaction, okay. because interaction still sounds like. But I don't want really people even right, to interact, interact on each other. Page. Yeah, you can interact with the web page, right? <laughs> yeah. That's still too sterile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to get you know loamy again. You know, I yeah, want to get yeah, like yeah. into the soil yeah. again yeah, and yeah, say yeah. like, I, I, it's good for us to be infringed on. Yeah. by each other. Right. Um, and this, you know, going back to you know Constance, this this uh, this this Orthodox guy, he points out that the re- what makes icons, you know, when people are making icons, there's a deliberate technique in icon making that makes it deliberately not represent right. the person it's it's off you it's know off. it always there's an incongruity an face. yeah there's an right. incongruity yeah. the eyes are too yeah. are bigger yeah. you know yeah, yeah. and it always he says the incongruous moments of life are reminders that there's something beyond this moment right here mm. there's something beyond the image that invites us to explore beyond it right if we are satisfied that this is all i need then this is where I'll stay. Right. But if I know, no, there's, I want to know, you know, Saint Lucy beyond this image of mm-hmm. Saint Lucy. Mm-hmm. Um, this this incongruity is a great way to kick me in the pants and yeah. tell me to keep going down it's the road strange. to know her. Makes right? the familiar Makes strange. strange. Right. And the same thing with you know with my spouse. I think if I I think if I ever thought my wife was. Uh, like if if all of a sudden like I I'd, I'd figured her out. I get it. Like <laughs> that's what I'm in most danger. That's when I'm the worst <laughs> husband, right? Because. <laughs> It's when when the when the image I have of her is met by the incongruity of reality. Right. When reality surprises the image that I have, that's when I have an opportunity to heal from my idolatry of her mm. and to move beyond it. You know, you and I have talked about Dante before. One of the things that the kids really latched onto in discussion this year was when Dante meets his like his crush Beatrice, and he's been fantasizing about meeting her for the whole series, right? right. He finally meets her, and when she introduces herself, she says, I'm Beatrice. She says, I am, and stresses it. <laughs> because it's like, I know who you thought you were going to meet, but this is the real me. Look at it mm. and know that it's different. Mm-hmm. And that's a scathing kind of indictment. This and guy is, you know, it's not what you right, thought. Right, right, right. And until we become to each other again, the people who continually are allowed to surprise each other's images of each other, and but more, more importantly, until we allow creation, God, each other, other humans to constantly break the little snapshots we've made for them, mm. the clean little you know cutouts we've made for them, uh, we'll continue to be idolatrous. The pornographic may be an expression of that, but that's the deeper sickness that gives rise to that symptom, and really is a symptom mm. of this deeper thing. Mm. To be encumbered, right, is actually the goal of life. I want to be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> to be bothered, inconvenienced, right? I mean, right. Uh, Lewis's line about if you if you don't want to change, don't mm-hmm. love anything at don't all, right? Anything. Like hide in your room, mm-hmm. like live to yourself. Right. Um, but to open yourself to the the real, to open yourself to the Lord, is to be brought into those deep relationships in which right. you are regularly encumbered. But that's terrifying, and it is <laughs> right, and, and that's why <laughs> so people scary. have trouble being a part of a church. It's right. why because you don't get to pick everything right. and every personality in it. So so we would say, uh, if we we're going to sort of close this, we would say that there's a way of thinking about the iconicity. Can yeah, we use that word? Yeah, I think that's word? right. The, the, the iconness, right? The yeah. iconness of, the, of, of, of people, yeah. of the world, um, wherein everything is 
you're able to appreciate, be drawn into it precisely mm-hmm. because you recognize in that same moment right. you don't fully understand. That's right. And it isn't necessarily something, and it doesn't terminate at the seeing of it. Mm-hmm. It, it, it only terminates in the love of God, right? right? It only terminates when it becomes no, no, that's right. something that is attached as the good gift of a good God. You know, you and I, you and I teach literature, and you know, when I have when I have kids that you know they're they're struggling through Dante or Plato or whatever, and they get to it, they're like, "Wow, this is really hard to understand." And I'm like, "Yeah, it is." And like, we're doing our best and barely making any headway. <laughs> I go, um, "But it's good practice because imagine how hard a, a person must be. Right? Imagine how hard that person sitting next to you in the desk next to you in the classroom must be to figure out if the book is hard." How much harder are they to figure out? Because they're way more complicated than this book. Yeah. And then, guys, imagine how amazingly complex and difficult to get our minds around God must be. Hmm. If the person next to us, a created person, is just bewildering to us, how much more so must God be? Go. So if you don't don't treat people less as less complicated than the book, you know, and don't treat God as less complicated than a person, hmm. you know, and and I think we'll be all right, right? But as soon as we try to do that, that's when we get into trouble. <laughs> mm, that's a good word. And I'd say my last word on this would be young people can sort of be blamed for everything yeah. that's happening and that happens to them. But they learned um, it from somewhere. And, and there's something in it for, for older people to be able to look at a, a teenager and say, hey, guess what? Maybe you need to not say you understand them. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't get them. Maybe you yeah. don't really know what it means to say, well, you know, teenagers, right? Like maybe yeah. maybe that's one of those early places we could go in which we we take everything away. We, you're, we you're make a person. It, yeah, we <laughs> circumscribe a young person because we, well, I've been there. I, I know yeah. how everyone is who's this age or whatever. Right. Like when, you know, you minister, when you teach, when you when you love people, whatever stage of life they're in, you you do so realizing, as you say, they are so much more complex, and, oh, yeah. and they're so much more compelling than people they're growing seem to, all the time. Yeah, be willing yeah. to even acknowledge they become a trope or something like that. Yep. So, so I, I would just say as a as a great encouragement even to parents, yeah, um, your son or your daughter is is beautiful they are so much more than you even realize and i say that to myself you know yeah. with my young children uh, it won't be oh well you know how teenagers are like I, we have to resist those mm-hmm. moves because it's not it's not fair and we we stop seeing them um yeah. for who they are in the lord for who they've been made That's to right. be um so whatever age <laughs> whoever they are um it's always more and other and it's always an avenue by which we can actually see and love the living God. Amen. Reverend Butler, thank you for this conversation. Thank you, David. That's our time, my friends. If you would like to support the podcast, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And if you would like even more content and to become a patron of the podcast, head on over to FromBabylonWithLove.com, click on Newsletter, and sign up there. Until then, many thanks to producer Zach Leach for all the twists and turns, and to Lonesome and Muddy, the only house band that'll survive the apocalypse. This has been From Babylon with Love.